welcome to The Found Cause, where we found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my left is... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And to our virtual front is... Theodore, under the PC, person of Christ. You may, astute listener, may realize that we are in a completely different place. If you're listening by audio, you might hear the slight echo, and if you're listening on video, you'll see our weird studio. Um, no, this is not its final form. You might see the Life Proof, sponsored by Home Depot. Um, <laughs> floor behind me, that is because I've moved into a new house with my wife, and this is the work-in-progress basement office. But until we have it nice and set up, you will see just a bunch of crap here, so apologies. Um, Theodore's office looks great, though, as always, and so does Sebastian, just in general. Today's topic is on Jesus. We are a Christian podcast after all, so Jesus is a worthy topic. However, um, not just any old Jesus. We wanted to do something that we haven't done before just because the topic seems so mundane, but I think we can get a lot out of it, and that is, what are the stories that people typically tell about Jesus, and what are some of the ones that are left out? Now, to caveat, Jesus is the most talked about topic at church, so it's not like any of these stories are really going to be a total surprise, especially to people who have read the Bible or been in church for a while. I think most everything he does is talked about, so it's not like we're going to be giving you any like crazy new Gnostic spins, and we're certainly not going to be going into any of those weird other Gospels of things you've never heard How of. How disappointing. Yeah. Just kidding. Jesus didn't really do any of them, but... We are going to talk about how I think liberals often take particular stories of Jesus. We're going to talk about those. We're going to show how they should be seen in light of um, and, and what to guard against when you're talking about the stories. And the same thing from the conservative side. Um, granted, I also want to give this caveat. One side is a lot less dangerous than the other. Liberal side is way more dangerous than the conservative side. But let's not be deluded being on the more conservative side to think that there's not pitfalls that we fall into. Um, there's still stories that conservatives like to quote, and I want to make sure that we know the right way to, to hold to those and what not to use them for. And then lastly, we'll talk about some just lesser known stories about Jesus and uh, final conclusions of of. Jesus's life, essentially the final conclusion I can already tell you is that Jesus doesn't fit into any box. Um, he is God and righteous, so you can't categorize him as some things. Um, but often we expect Jesus to do something and he doesn't, and it even surprises longtime Christians. So without further ado, I want to hand it over to my co-host, um, Theodore. I'm going to hand it off to you first. Do you have a story of uh, Jesus's life that would fit into a often quoted by liberals category. And if you don't, you can pass to Sebastian, of course. I don't want to catch you too off guard. Um, the Beatitudes? Yeah. No, that's totally what uh, I would have said. Mm-hmm. Construing of the Beatitudes, perhaps. Yeah. And can you give a summary of what the Beatitudes are and how they might be used by a liberal church in your imagination? Um... Blessed are the poor, the meek, the humble, and love your enemies. Don't hurt anyone. Don't fight back or um, give yourselves to people that persecute you. Let yourself yeah. be abused by them. And we actually, we just did an episode on Christian pacifism, right? Um, which is sometimes on the left, and it's kind of a unique position. Um, but they use the Beatitudes just like that, of never fight back. Because Jesus says, you know, if somebody slaps in the right cheek, turn the other two mouths, or if somebody sues you for your shirt, let them have your coat as well, or whatever. Um, now, righteously, we agree with Jesus and his principle, and that is that if somebody's coming after you for your wealth, um, don't hold on to your wealth so much that you're willing to sacrifice ministry opportunities or friendships or whatever else. And in the same way, if somebody has insulted you, that's what the slap on the, the, the cheek is, um, then uh, let them insult you, right? You can you can turn the other cheek and, and let yourself be degraded verbally. Um, what they aren't are calls to never defend yourself. Um, there are times where Christians shouldn't, uh, i.e. Jesus, prime example, where he where he gives himself up for a purpose, but it's not that principally he's not willing to defend himself, it's that he was purposefully not defending himself to give himself up on the cross. Um, but the Beatitudes, I think, are the go-to that everybody knows and that liberal churches quote in in profusely because it's really, I think, one of the few things they actually agree with Jesus with. Um, and it's what they grew up on, so it's easy to cling to and say, I believe in Jesus because I believe in loving your neighbor. And loving your neighbor means um, Black Lives Matter or whatever you might shove in there. So, yes, I think the Beatitudes, when Jesus goes and gives a sermon on a mount um, to a large crowd of people, that's the story. Um, that's that's one that totally liberal churches do. Happy and, Sebastian. And the reason why they... Go ahead, Theodore. Um, in Luke 9... Jesus also says, this is where he's commissioning the 12 disciples and saying, 
take nothing for the road, no walking stick, no traveling bag, no bread, no money, and don't even take a shirt, but what, uh, whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they do not welcome you when you leave that town, shake the, the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Um, and that's kind of like the, I guess with the 12 disciples, it's like a genuine ministry and like, don't seek a job or anything else at this moment. Um, like let people provide for you if they're so generous to do so. But it's not like a, this not always bad, but like when fundraising for a mission trip or something like that, mm -hmm. um, it's not quite like that, but it, <laughs> sorry, in this case it is. But then later, obviously Jesus says, when when Jesus is going away, then he basically tells them, okay, yes, uh, bring with you money, a coat, a sword, right. um, et cetera, to, for yourself. But also, uh, with that, continue to spread the gospel. Yeah, and you're kind of skipping ahead to our third section, but I agree with you. Sorry. Um, no, it's fine, because it's the right... Um, right response to a more liberal church usually that quotes something like that um can quote it for ministry opportunities like you said theodore to try to get fundraising or whatever else that jesus says you know we can't take extra shirts so give me money <laughs> which is like the opposite because he tells the disciples don't get a money bag for a money belt to, to collect money um as you go so they're saying that you should fundraise beforehand and blah 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 I don't think it's directly Imagine. applicable, but they misquoted. Um, but what they even right. forget is that I don't even think you really need to exegete the passage about how he prescribes the disciples to go about Israel for how for what it means today, because he does tell them um, when he's leaving that now is the time for persecution is coming, um, which we, I would argue, are still in today, and therefore bring things when you go out. So you no longer need to do that um, minimum preaching gospel that he had them going out and doing he instead tells them be prepared like bring a weapon bring bring coats bring preparedness because people will not welcome you normally and you're going to need that um so i agree with you theodore that's the correct response there and then uh sebastian any comments as you have noticed many of these are cited because they sound all very pleasant yeah. they are very heartwarming okay minus the exegesis you just gave because that is understanding of the text but the reason why these texts are cited is they feel nice. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. And also, normally, people tend to be attracted to those things. Most, not all. I wouldn't say so myself, for myself. But that's why they become very popular. And on the topic of <clears throat> giving your possessions, you see that more in prosperity, prosperity preachers? Yeah, they just true. surrender <laughs> all you have and give it all to me because the Lord commands it. And they might even cite the story in Acts. I uh, forget the, exactly the names right now of the two people, but they hid money away. Yep. Ananias and Sapphira. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. So because they hid something away, the Lord eventually struck them down. So that might be an intimidation tactic to um, get the people in the congregation to donate money. I would group in many prosperity preachers in here because... They tend to say things that are pleasant to the crowd, crowd, crowd pleasers. Mm -hmm. That is where I would say the liberal, theologically, not necessarily politically, but liberal, theologically, liberally churches, they tend to emphasize things that would be more pleasant to hear for a wider audience. Yeah. Whereas many conservative churches, their focus is, now they can go, they can go wild in some directions like kill all adulterers like right now on the spot or or um radical purity culture not biblical purity but rather and self-imposed we have talked about a legalist yeah. purity so they can go off in that direction too but when it comes to liberals whether some squishy uh, lutheran lady in canada or some wild prosperity preachers like kenneth copeland Right. They all are saying things that tickle the ears of the congregation. That's really what I wanted to mention of why these passages are cited. Yeah, and speaking of, so I mean, I think you're right. I think prosperity gospel preachers are kind of in their own category. Like they're not liberal like the squishy Lutheran Canadian lady pastorette. Um, <laughs> but like you said, Sebastian, I would, 
because they're usually politically conservative. Like usually they donate to political causes that are conservative, whatever else. You might be tempted to think they're conservative Christians. But when we say conservative and liberal, we mean, are you holding to um, the text as being true or as being like your plaything? Your plaything, exactly. And they use it as their plaything. I don't think prosperity gospel preachers really care what really happened. They care what we take away from it. Um, so those like, even Andy Stanley, I think, ends up falling in that category. Even though he's not politically liberal, he is uh, starting to get more liberal with the text, this non-citing of the Old Testament, and not really caring what the New Testament has to say, except that Jesus rose again and whatever else. Um, I would say on, on the prosperity gospel train, when Jesus is telling his disciples um, that they can move mountains if they just have faith, an off-sided um, miracle of Jesus is when he's going up to Jerusalem, they're in a garden, and on the outskirts and he goes up to a fig tree because he's hungry and it's not the season for figs the fig tree is not bearing fruit and so he curses it and says you know may you never produce fruit again and then by the time the disciples and him come back that fig tree is withered and is dying and so the disciples are amazed and say oh my gosh look how quickly it withered and he says to them you know you'll do way more than this if you have faith i tell you you can tell this mountain pointing to zion um be moved and it'll be moved from here to there and he equally says um, in, a, in a similar passage later in his ministry, um, also pointing to a particular holy mountain, he says, you will point to this mountain and say, be thrown into the sea and it will be done for you. Um, so they point these to say that you can do anything, right? You can move mountains. There's a there's a Jason Castro song about it, um, that this is only a mountain. Uh, okay. So, so they say that with enough faith, you can do anything, i.e., they say you should be able to heal yourself. You should be able to heal friends. You should be able to attract wealth. Whatever you want, you should be able to do. And so, of course, like you're saying, Sebastian, that scratches itchy ears that say, I want wealth. I want healing. I want reconciliation, whatever it is. And unfortunately for them, it's really a false promise. Not that God doesn't give wealth. Not that God doesn't give healing. Not that God does, doesn't give reconciliation. But you can't command God to do things via faith. Um, and really, I think fundamentally, and to the point of this episode, it misunderstands the point of the whole passage isn't about the power of faith, though it does show God working a miracle. I mean, it's a pretty minor miracle, all things considered, a, a tree withering fast. Um, it's, it's actually a story about Jesus cursing the fig tree, the fig tree being representative of Israel. And so, and, and then including the, the comment about the mountain, um, which you might forget because he just says the mountain and you're not thinking about which mountain it is. It's Mount Zion, which once again represents Israel. Mm -hmm. What he's telling the, the disciples is you will do more miracles than this. The fig tree is a representative of Israel, but even this whole mountain, so like yeah, the whole concept of Israel, you can move, you can change um, when the time comes. And so God does transport the, the old Israel that was flesh and blood into the new Israel, which is the whole church. And so that's what the disciples end up doing. They perform that miracle. And so we're still part of that miracle today, bring, bringing people into that branch of the new Israel. Um, but that is the point of the, the the whole thing. It's not about miraculous works. Wow. Preach. Preach right there. <laughs> Any other uh, liberal oft-quoted stories, gentlemen? You probably know this one better since you have memorized or had memorized Matthew, but when... Um, this is theologically, again, theologically liberal, when we just want to make that clear for the sake of our conversation today. The Phoenician woman that approaches Jesus mm -hmm. and asks for her daughter uh, to be healed. And then Jesus says, I didn't come for, I only came for the house of Israel. Again, I'm paraphr paraphrasing uh -huh. here. You can correct me if I'm mistaken. And then... She, she continues to beg. Yes. And he says, I don't give to the dogs, the the breads, the children's bread of Israel, to the dogs. Yes. Disclaimer, it says puppies. I mean, I understand. It might the doggies, not, yeah, you could say. Uh -huh. Yes. Not dog, because that is, like in Spanish, not so much in English, in Spanish and Greek back then, a female dog is a very bad word. So, so in this English is, too, this is, yes. Yes. Yeah. This is not that word that's being used just for the record. Nonetheless, Jesus still compares Gentiles to puppies, whereas the serious people on the table were the, the children of Israel at that time. We'll exegete the text in a bit. But some silly people, we have gone over actually this individual before. We did a reaction video to um, Brandon Robertson. He calls Jesus was, 
a racist in the in this case and actually was corrected later on by this Phoenician woman because he was a racist. The Phoenician woman insisted even the dogs uh, eat the crumbs or fall off the tables. So then what he's suggesting was Jesus was just a mere human. He made mistakes. He was a sinner, a racist. Racist is sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, no news to anybody. Yeah. And um, he needed correction. So... In this case, it's theologically liberal because it's being used to show that Jesus wasn't God. Which right? Why? Why? Why would you do that? But I'll leave it. I'll I'll be quiet now. Yeah, and that's kind of a uniquely quoted one. Like usually they don't quote that one. Like I, if if we hadn't reacted to Brandon Robertson and he had become a thing because of TikTok, I would say that's a oft not quoted version of Jesus at all. But now it's become popular in recent days because of that like right. insulting Jesus vibe, which is interesting. And, and I think even from the conservative lens in reaction to that, we'll point to that and say, and I've done it myself, I'll point to that and say, like, you think you like Jesus, liberal people, but look, here's Jesus doing this thing that you don't like, calling somebody a dog. Um, clearly, he's not the, like the lovey-dovey boyfriend Jesus, which he's not. Um, but I do think we have to be careful when we do something like that, because um, the passage isn't showing that Jesus is like an edgelord um, either. I don't think what he mm-hmm. says is particularly... Um, egregious or impactful in that day either like he wasn't bucking the trend by calling her a dog the way he did um now like you said sebastian he's not actually like insulting insulting her he's just not bringing her up to the level of israel um but that wasn't some edgelord thing to do then um i think the passage is clearly really showing that not only does god have grace for the gentiles and it's just another example of him having grace for the gentiles but also that um he is he to emphasize that his mission was for israel but clearly it was an allusion to his mission Mm -hmm. being for more than israel and that is the gentile so once again i think it's another allusion to um him coming to save israel as promised another fulfillment of the messiah that was coming to save israel but that the faithful ones tended to be gentiles at the time because the jewish uh, root was being cut off as john the baptist says in the very beginning of matthew and some of the gospels the axe is already at the root of the tree and this is showing the axe is already at the root of the tree. Like Jesus is coming for Israel, but he's really coming in judgment because in 70 AD, the nation of Israel is essentially destroyed. Um, but the Gentiles take the gospel. Um, so again, I think that's really the root of the message, which is a good thing. And it might seem squishy um, to say that like Jesus loves the nations, but he does. And that's an example of it. Any more, gentlemen? Not for me. I've got some. I've got the classics uh, of him healing. So when he heals the sick and the lame, when he heals the uh, man on the stretcher that's lowered down on a stretcher, um, when he heals the blind men with the mud because they are crying out, um, and when he heals the, the man at Bethsaida uh, with, uh, with the lame legs who won't walk up to the pool because he can't, nobody's lifting him in. Um, people, prosperity gospel preachers, but also just liberal gospel preachers, will both say that Jesus heals that he is a healer and he always either that he always wants to heal and so you can heal too and like jesus always wants to heal or that our calling um in in following jesus should be to heal anyone we come across um and well that sounds like a nice sentiment right because it sounds nice and people want healing so it's again that itchy scratchy give me that thing um the problem is that in all of those instances jesus does not heal everyone um and in almost everyone you can specify that he specifically didn't heal everyone some passages say he went and said you know cast out many demons and heal many people like when he goes to the gatherings or other places um, he just like blanket does a town so it's not that he doesn't do that it's not that he doesn't in the business of doing that but um several key passages like when the woman who's been bleeding for for 12 years comes and touches the hem of his robe he says who touched me and then the disciples say like a billion people, Jesus, what are you talking about, right? Um, but c- you'd think, you'd think that of the many people clamoring around to touch Jesus, several of them are probably sick looking to be healed, right? But he heals one woman. So clearly he's not in the business of healing everyone. He heals one woman. Really, God the Father decides to heal it, but through Jesus. In any case, um, the woman is healed, but it's just one. And in the same way, he goes to the, the pool at Bethsaida, and there's all these sick people there to be healed, presumably not being healed because i don't think the water really works the rumor is that an angel stirs up the waters and that's when you can get healed whatever probably not true um 
However, this guy who's not even asking for it, he doesn't come up to Jesus, he doesn't cry out, he doesn't do anything. Jesus goes up to some guy and heals him. And the guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. It's not even that um, he's faithless or rejected of Jesus or whatever else, mm-hmm. but he doesn't even know who he is. So much so that he has to see him again in the temple to even know his name. Um, but Jesus just decides to heal him. So Jesus is not in the business of healing whoever he wants. He clearly has a plan. Um, and again, balance the conservative side. It's not that he doesn't heal people, and that he wasn't a healer. I mean, he is a healer, but he's he's not a always healer, and he's not a never healer. And I think in that way, he thwarts the reactionary reaction to the squishy people, and he, of course, thwarts the squishy people that say that um, you should always help somebody in need before you. Um, when they quote, here's another one, the Good Samaritan, classic, classic one, right? <laughs> you should help not only foreigners, um, because the Samaritan was a foreigner to the Jew and there he was helping, but you should also just help people that are in your way. Um, Therefore, we should have no borders. Therefore, one, we should have no borders. Uh, I've heard that message from enough woke preacher clips, um, but equally that you should, uh, if anybody's ever in need anywhere, you should be paying to have them done, or at least pay the government to have them taken care of. And Therefore, socialism? Therefore, socialism, exactly. That's usually the push. Um, the, the problem with that is the, the question at hand is who is your neighbor? In fact, that's what prompts it. Is a teacher of the law comes up to Jesus and says, um, what are the, you know, what's the law? How can I keep the law? And Jesus says, oh, you know all the laws, tell me. And he says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, you've said it. You know, that's, that's how you follow the law. And the teacher then trying to justify himself, as the text says, he says, well, who's my neighbor? Right, because I don't love everyone like maybe my neighbor's just like my mom and <laughs> i can take care of her and so jesus responds with the the parable about the samaritan and i think the key thing about the text in the, the good samaritan is that the samaritan encounters the jew on the road i.e god placed this jew who's been beaten up on the road and so your neighbor is somebody you encounter that God has brought before you. It's not some far off distant person. The Samaritan didn't hear a distress call about a broken Jew like 30 miles away and come all the way to help him, though that's a perfectly nice thing to do. And so giving to people who are far away isn't some ungodly act. However, it's not your calling to do that unless unless you know otherwise. It is every person's calling. If you see somebody in need in front of you, they have been placed in front of you, and that's why you help them. So I think in that way, it balances the liberal thing. It's not socialism. In fact, I would say it's the opposite. It's taking of your own money. The Samaritan had his own money, and he gave a large portion of the money to to see the man get taken care of um, to help somebody you immediately see. And then as a reaction, the conservatives should not react to that by saying, um, you know, this is a special case. It's not applicable to, to actual people. I think it is applicable to actual people. Um, I hate to say it. Some cases, it would be a homeless person. I'm very into not giving to homeless people because typically it does not help them. Um, but you could make the case that, that somebody who's truly out of their luck, that's been beat up or whatever else and is somehow incapacitated, it really is your Christian duty to take them someplace to get healed, give them give money so that they can be taken care of until they're they're recovered now again homeless people is kind of like a rap trail issue but um I, jesus here i think is splitting the sea between the reactionary people who say you never give and to the liberals who say you always give and are pro-socialism any others not at all okay i mean if you have some you're more than welcome to share but <laughs> uh i've got some I feel like we're going to overload on the liberal text because the conser- I'm conservative. I probably blind some of the conservative texts that we quote too much. And also, like I said, one side is more dangerous than the other. Um, but I'm going to quote another liberal text. There's a, a section where certain towns reject Jesus. And Jesus is there with his disciples. And um, the disciples come back. Some of the disciples have been out preaching. And the disciples come back to him. Um, he'd sent out like 50 disciples. So it wasn't just the 12. And they come back to him and say, some particular towns didn't believe. They give the names. And John, the disciple John, is uh, incensed that they don't believe because that's evil. They're rejecting the one true God. And so he says to Jesus, like, should we call down fire on them? Like Sodom and Gomorrah? And because, because, and no, it's not just John being like some freakish bloodthirsty man, (laughs) which I mean, maybe. Um, But also Jesus had already previously in his ministry said, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, um, 
Capernaum, you know, all these towns that had rejected him, it, it would be better for Sodom than for you. It would be better for Tyre and Sidon than for you because um, they had never heard and, and got destroyed. You've heard and yet you reject me. Um, so John is drawing the parallel. He's like, you say these towns are worse than Sodom. Should we destroy them like you destroyed Sodom? And Jesus says, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's it, right? That the judgment's for a different time. It's not for now. And I think liberals point to that and say, ha, 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 John is like, you know, Rush Limbaugh. He is, he is just a fire-breathing dragon who wants to nuke um, Iraq, and we should never do that. Uh, instead, um, Jesus is all about love and kisses. And I think they forget that Jesus is not all about love and kisses, but he is about metered and patient justice, just like the God of the Old Testament was, because he is the God of the Old Testament. Um, the God of the Old Testament was very patient, and had been patient with Sodom and Gomorrah and had sent in his emissaries and himself to go see if there was anybody righteous in Sodom um, and brought out the one righteous guy from Sodom before he destroys it. So God is extremely patient and measured in justice. And so in the same way Jesus is measured in justice, his words would be fulfilled where he says it was going to be better for Sodom than for, for these towns because they are wiped off the map, not only spiritually do these people not end up being saved, but also the Romans come and destroy these towns on their pillaging way towards um, Jerusalem. So his judgment does come. It's just not at that time. It comes 40 years later. Anyway, I'm going to keep pausing in case you guys have any other <laughs> quotes so that I don't just talk the whole time. But I the can look throw off. in Luke 12, 7. Go um, ahead, yeah. Or Luke 12, 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Even, uh, I mean, indeed... The very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking, if we're still on the liberal stuff. Yeah, we are. They, they, could, <laughs> they could take that and run with it, saying they are inherently valuable in and of themselves. Right. And, um, whatever they identify as, etc. Yeah, and, and I... I don't know that I've actually heard that allusion, but yes, I could see it being done on the whole LGBTQ thing or whatever else, um, or even just the whole denying of sin that, that you yourself are valuable and haven't sinned and people shouldn't say that, whatever else. Um, the passage is not talking about your righteousness before God. It's just talking about your um, the fact that God will provide for you. And so um, there's some truth to that. I mean, honestly, there's some truth that God values you. Everybody that's a human is made in the image of God, and he cares about creation, and he cares about sparrows, and so he cares about people. Um, but what that doesn't mean is that he's, you know, forgiving everyone their trespasses. It's only those who repent, and those who repent, they're only the ones that he chooses, and there's all those caveats. Um, I think I also have heard that one quoted for the whole, like, poverty is a virtue thing, where if you intentionally stay poor, um, you're more faithful because you're trusting God entirely, um, which can be true as far as like God can keep you poor for whatever his purposes are. Like I don't hold it past God. Um, John the Baptist, for example, and Jesus both did not have tons of money and didn't um, work traditional ways. However, the vast majority of people are called to work. God calls men to work. It's the original calling of men. Paul writes in his epistles that those who don't eat, uh, those who don't work, shouldn't eat um, and equally that widows whose families don't take care of them and who can work should work so even if their family's not taking care of them like they should they should still work um so let alone if their family is they should also be working um so the clear call in scripture is to work and I, i've seen a theme in liberal churches and even some confused people in conservative churches that will say um, that it's more faithful to be poor than it is to be rich and that's not true when Jesus says another often quoted Jesus uh, verse that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to go into heaven, he's not saying that wealth is evil. He's saying it makes it harder for you to know your need, which is, I think, an obvious fact. It's true. We shouldn't reject that. It is Jesus' teaching, and it is true. It is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. But note, it's actually impossible for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. And so the disciples say, who can ever go to heaven because everybody has some sort of wealth, right? And if it's if it's as hard as a camel going through the eye of a needle for a rich person, then how, you know, it's like a beetle going through the eye of a needle for a super poor person. And even that's impossible. But Jesus's response isn't like, well, you got to sell everything then, you know, you can't have any wealth. His response is, um, 
it may be impossible by man, but it's possible through God. And so God is the one that, that brings the faith. So it's really a message about God transforming hearts and that, that riches do often come with, with faithlessness because you then have faith in riches. But it doesn't mean that poverty is inherently good. And there are many people, especially in today's society, that are intentionally not working or are, are skipping out on good work and so are poor. And even scripture says in the Old Testament that poverty is usually a curse because you haven't worked um, or because your ancestors didn't work or whatever it is. Like you have been cursed to poverty because somebody along the line hasn't worked and passed you on wealth or you yourself haven't built wealth. And so it is good to work and it's good to have wealth. Um, period. I mean, you don't really need to caveat that. There are caveats to that, but I won't even caveat it. I think that's what's forgotten when Jesus talks about the camel and the sparrows and everything like that. On a random note, the Quran does cite that as I'm being oh, yeah. my quest to the Quran cites um, it will be a camel will first pass through the eye of a needle before this and this happens, which I was like, wow, I've seen that somewhere, I've seen that somewhere before. There you go. Random aside. It is a random aside. Uh, other Jesus passages that are often quoted, I'm going to give two. They're classics. Um, again, I think they're more often quoted by liberals because of their squishiness. And uh, you've already heard the theme, but what conservatives shouldn't do is throw out a passage or think it's not useful or it doesn't always, it doesn't mean what you think it means because squishes use it. Just because a squish uses it doesn't mean that it's not true. Jesus does have a soft side and a hard side. And it's good because if he didn't have a soft side, we'd all be destroyed. Two I'm going to quote are the, the Principe Adulterae, as it said in Latin, the, the adulterous woman who is brought before Jesus. It's actually a disputed passage in John, meaning scholars and, and originalists of the text don't believe that it was originally in the text. So it's probably a story about Jesus that didn't make it into the Gospels. It probably was not in the original version of John. doesn't necessarily mean it never happened, but it could be fake. In any case, um, it's highlighted in your Bible. You can look there if you are frustrated by my saying that. But let's run with it that it is actually what Jesus did. There's a woman who is brought before him by the Pharisees. The Pharisees intend to trap Jesus because they know that, that actually holding to the real law is unpopular. People don't like it. And that's why they don't. They hold to like a fake version of the law. And Jesus has been calling them out for not actually holding to the real God, God's law. And so they call him on his bluff. And they're like, okay, you like real God's law? You know what real God's law says? You kill people. So we're going to take an adulteress and you're going to stone her. So they bring her up and they say, look, law man um here's an adulteress we just caught her um stoner and jesus doesn't and then he says the famous words you know ye who um has not sinned cast the first stone and so they all leave eventually the oldest first and then the youngest and uh the saying i think is used by liberal churches to say that you can't judge and it's also in the beatitudes we just forgot to say it um, judge not, so don't judge, lest ye be judged. And in the same way in this, this parable, well, not a parable, an incident with this adulterous woman, um, even though she committed adultery, which is a death-worthy crime, the punishment for adultery is uh, stoning in the New Testament um, and in the Old Testament, the principle that Jesus is showing is that um, he's not going to judge this woman for her heinous crime, and so you should not judge people for their heinous crimes. And that he's getting rid of the Old Testament law. That he, and he's dumping the Old Testament law. And maybe it's actually fine. Maybe it's not even a sin to be an adulteress. Things like that. Uh, none of that's true. I'm sure if you're, you're hearing me say all this, you know I'm about to say that none of that's true. Um, Jesus does uphold the Old Testament law in that passage. And he does not make adultery a nothing crime. But I think conservatives shouldn't also react and say like, Jesus actually like did turn around and stone her. It's just not written down or you know, something like that. Uh, he doesn't stone her in this passage. So don't think that he does. Um, I would say the thing that Jesus is demonstrating there besides mercy and not submitting to the crowd is strength and holding to the, the actual law. Because the Pharisees were right in saying that adulteresses should get stoned as God's law says. And so they're right to, to think that Jesus would be forced to do this if he was actually a law follower. However, 
What Jesus says when he says, let ye who does not have sin cast the first stone, he is not saying, and I'll repeat this because it is so often said, conservative churches, liberal churches, whoever often say this, he is not saying, ye who has never ever sinned cast the first stone, that would be stupid. Okay, because there are many, many times that the Israelites would be have, would have been condoned, and God condones in His law to stone particular crimes. Um, and never is the the standard. Ye who has not sinned, cast the first stone. That is never the standard. When He says, "Ye who have not sinned, cast the first stone," He is saying, "Ye who is coming to Me, you guys who are coming to Me with this charge, if you're actually following the law, cast the first stone." And they all noticed, the oldest first and then the, the youngers, noticed that they had brought one, just the adulterous woman in, not the adulterer man, which the law demands that both be stoned. In addition, they're supposed to be brought before the elders of Israel, and they're bringing him before Jesus, who's not even of the town. So that's another breach of the law. And then three, there's supposed to be two to three independent lines of witness. So he's asking also for the witnesses, come forward, you who does not sin, and witness that, the, that she was an adulterer. Um, and they need to be independent, of which they only had one incident. A bunch of people saw her doing this. That's not, that's not independent witnesses. That's all one event. They need like physical evidence or something else to go with it. And so all these three things were making this not a legitimate trial. It's a sham trial. And so Jesus calls it out. He says, he who is not sin, cast a stone. Like, are you doing this legitimately or not? And of course they know they're not. And instead of being willing to go get the guy or like actually go through the law, they their bluff has been called because they don't actually want to go through the law. And if they go and get all the witnesses, clearly they're the ones initiating this death and they don't want the, the blood on their hands, the people angry for them stoning an adulteress, so they leave. And in that way, Jesus says wisdom. And the woman comes up to him and says, you know, thank you for not getting me stoned. Jesus doesn't say like, they're there, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. Or like, who cares anyways? Or, <laughs> you know, whatever he might have said. Um, or like, you know, those people shouldn't be judging you. He doesn't say any of that. His response to her is, you know, you've been forgiven because of me, you know, like I'm bread, the fruit of life. He's the payment for all sin. Go and sin no more. Stop with the adultery stuff. So he doesn't okay the adultery. He doesn't say it's not a big deal. He tolerates her, I think, and says, go and sin no more. So that's a pretty common one. I'm going to give another one, but I keep speaking. So I'm going to give you guys time if you have others. Keep going. You're on a fire. Okay. One last one. And then I'll stop. It's similar vein um, to the don't, to the don't judge thing. Jesus is being crucified, and one of his many last phrases on the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you will find every fainting heart, liberal and lesbian pastorette, um, saying, Ah, the true heart of Christ, not condemning even those who killed him, but forgiving. And so too should we forgive those who trespass against us when they sin with, what sin again? I've forgotten already whatever, you know, they don't even have sin anymore. I think they used to go down that line because they knew they were sinning. And so they say we should forgive homosexuals that are in our congregation, but now they themselves are homosexuals and they say God endorses it. So like, what sin are they even fighting at this point? But um, I think what they should note is that Jesus asks that they be forgiven for killing the son of God. And so God grants this request. These people don't die. In fact, we don't know exactly what Jesus is asking here, but it could be that these men would all have been destroyed for the sin. You know, Jesus still would have died, the promise still would have been fulfilled, all that, but they could have all died. There was a great earthquake, that centurion is terrified, the, the lead of the soldiers that are sitting there crucifying him. So clearly he was worried for his life, um, and they're crucifying God. And so it could be that an earthquake could have swallowed that whole crowd up, then everybody would have died. So Jesus asked for mercy in that particular time. But um, notice that God doesn't always withhold judgment. And Jesus talked about, right before he goes on the cross, actually, he talks about in his final um, sermon to the apostles, the coming judgment. And now the goats will be separated from the sheep and thrown into the fire, the everlasting fire that never goes out. And so he's not withholding judgment entirely. It's not a forgive these people of everything they've ever done. He, all he says is forgive them of this particular sin because this needed to be accomplished. It was a particular time, a special time. So yes, we are called to forgive our enemies, forgive these as they've sinned against us, as we've sinned against the Father, all of that. So I'm not saying that that's wrong. You can note conservatives and reactionaries, don't take that stance. But you shouldn't take that ask of Jesus to mean that, um, that God himself does not judge, because of course he does. And it's righteous that he does.
I have another one. You inspired me when you said the cross. Uh-huh. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As I've been also my quest through Islam. I'm converting for the, this. I just want to make that clear. I'm not converted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Muslims, atheists, they all say, see, clearly Jesus was not divine because he's obeying God. If he had known why he's going to, he's going to be killed that he's going to be crucified why is he asking god my god my god why have you forsaken me so clearly jesus is just a human being atheists liberal theologians muslims alike mm-hmm. love to use this message if only they had just bothered to look a little bit closer to the text and notice there's a tiny asterisk where it says my god my god why have you forsaken me and it says see psalm 22 and if you go to psalm 22 which is you know what any normal person would do you would realize like oh this is a song written by david and it's like wow all the things that are happening here being mocked scorned hurt the god appointed him and brought him out yet his enemies surround him like lions all his bones are intact mm-hmm. meaning they're not broken which if you notice jesus bones are not broken right it's like it's almost as if he is like when he read from the scroll of isaiah early in his ministry it's like this is being fulfilled before you it's like wow it's almost as if he is right. doing the exact same thing who could have thought of that and i think where they take that and run with it is they say jesus is distraught like there's a famous film called the last temptation of christ where jesus is being crucified says the line and he has this big flash forward of like what his life could be if he just you know says the words that he's not god or whatever else and is able to live his life and he gets kids and he's like you know happily playing in the field and he gets his job at mcdonald's and he's he's living the life um but then he he pushes through and decides to die anyways it's called the last temptation of christ blasphemous mm-hmm. whatever um, <laughs> and that's the vision that god is like suddenly having regrets about this um and is truly in anguish and that god like turned away from him and even conservatives on this front um there's famous songs that i like and i think they're wrong that say um uh, the father turned his face away um th- which uh, d- we don't think that actually happened i don't think the trinity would separate himself like that um from himself and so there's nothing to indicate that he would have this is the only line that would make you think that the father turned his face away um and he didn't like sebastian is saying this cry is a quote from the davidic psalms and part of the logic puzzle here is that the beginning of the psalm says my god my god why have you forsaken me and so has god forsaken the psalmist in this case jesus reciting the psalm jesus doesn't say false words so you might say well jesus is saying my god my god why have you forsaken me so god must have forsaken him that's the argument of people who are saying that he actually did Um, but we would say that david is the writer of the psalm inspired by the spirit yes but david is the writer of the psalm so when he says my god my god why have you forsaken me he doesn't know any better and he is actually mistaken when he says god has forsaken him it's a it's an exaggeration that god has left him because he's in this poor state so jesus quotes the psalmist quotes david um saying my god my god why have you forsaken me again a, a messianic psalm predicting his coming predicting his method of death all the rest but the fact that it starts with my god my god why have you forsaken me does not mean that god actually forsake forsook jesus or even david for that matter he's merely quoting and referencing that which will fulfill the glory of god at the end of the psalm will be spread all over the earth so yep yeah any other misconstrued often quoted jesus stories before i get into some of my favorite like just obscure jesus sayings that oh you don't want to do conservative ones well, we've kind of like I gone back and forth on no. conservative ones. You have conservatives. I do. That would be the time. But what do you say, Theodore? Well, I was just going to do an apparent contradiction one. <laughs> uh, do it. So, okay. So Luke chapter nine, um, Jesus says, whoever is not against you is for you. But Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Um, but then to add context in Luke chapter nine, um his disciples come to him saying okay there are these other people who are casting out demons in your name right what should we do and jesus says whoever is not against you is for you aka just let it be let them be there 
it's not consequential right now or they're not right. it's not your purpose to go or not a good use of your time or whatever and luke chapter 11 um the context is jesus is healing and casting out demons and then the pharisees come up to him and say well a blatant blaspheme basically saying oh you only cast out demons by demons Beelzebub, by the, ruler, the ruler of demons um and then in that context it is that jesus says like a house divided against itself cannot stand whoever is not with me is against me and basically the pharisees are against him because they were accusing him of healing or casting out demons in the spirit of beelzebub which is kind of unheard of right and i totally agree with your your exegesis there uh, theodore that they're not actually contradictory kind of like the proverbs when they say answer a fool a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes and then it also says do not answer a fool according to his folly and else you be foolish yourself because they're talking about different aspects it's kind of like an artsy play on words in that you should answer a fool according to his folly i.e like show him the fault of his logic by using his logic to show that it's bad um but also don't like use his logic to argue yourself because you'll be dumb just like they're dumb. Um, so even though it says the same things that sound contradictory, they actually mean different things. So in the same way, Jesus here is, is using contradictory words to mean different things. And then Sebastian, you had a conservative one? I do, yes. Well-intentioned churches use this one. People that take the Bible seriously use this one all the time. And it pains me. The widow's offering from Mark 12. We've been near, but we're near that part, but not exactly this one. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the, the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling out to his disciples, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than, than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Many people cite this one that we, this is an encouragement to give money, to donate, mm -hmm. to truly, you know, from your heart, give to the church. I wholeheartedly believe that you should give from your heart to the church. What I say, though, is this passage is not talking about what Christians should do for the for when it comes to offering. Rather, if you continue reading immediately in the following chapter he talks about the destruction of the temple and what this does is this is calling out the depravity he also was previously criticizing pharisees the system in israel had become so twisted that they were scamming widows out of their last penny so this woman just like how many catholics in the middle ages middle ages gave all their money to buy indulgences to buy salvation to buy something from god in the system that the church, the, the Pharisees had inve invented, she's going to die the next day. She all, literally all her money that she could live on, just gave it away. And she's probably going to die. I'm not the first person to say this. I would also cite uh, MacArthur, John MacArthur and Jeff Durbin have a similar interpretation of this. But I just see this all the time. Yeah. This is used as an encouragement to donate. But it's That's really a condemnation. Yeah. This is a criticism. This, look at how gross the, the, the Pharisees, the Jewish religion had become that is scamming widows literally out of their last penny. As Jesus also says, you, you go out of your, to the Pharisees, mm -hmm. the vipers, you take everything away from widows and the homeless. So it's just one that is often quoted with good intentions, but it's not right. Not at all. Because if you note, again, I think you'll hear a theme in this podcast and from my own mouth about God's law. God's law is about, has a tithe in it, so there is a payment. Um, but the payment is on your income, meaning that if you didn't make any income, you're not going to pay a lot. And so in the same way, this widow is probably making zero income. She's living off former wealth made. And you do not have to give a portion of your wealth that's already earned to the Lord according to the law. So this is, again, somebody has tricked her or whatever. She's giving this drachma and... She's super poor. So I, I agree with you. I agree with Jeff Durbin. I agree with MacArthur. And that is, this is really a condemnation of the temple, not a, a super promotion. For her. She's not sinning in her thing. It's just like showing that somebody's squeezing her for all she's got. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. for a system that's going away ultimately. Yes. So that is something that often gets misquoted. And then one that I've seen some radically conservative churches that if, when Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And that is really emphasized in the, se- in the sense. And you saw that you, you, we, we, we haven't seen it because we're too young for this. But with earlier generations, there was a really strong emphasis in what you do with your life must be in order to make Jesus happy with you. Otherwise, if he gets angry with you, he might take blessings away or yeah. he might impose punishments on you, which I want a disclaimer. He can do that any day, even if you're living a perfectly good life like right. Job. Like he Job, could just yeah. snatch that all away just like that. So that's his will. So we trust that what he does is good. But rather, the concern here is that by keeping not just to the law, we talked about this in another episode, but these strange regulations such as Christians don't drink any alcohol, zero whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You don't dance. You don't sing. You don't listen to rock music. No, just basic examples, but you get the point many of these were imposed that to show that you are a good Christian, you must do all these things. Unfortunately, for many of these hyper conservative places, these rules that they're imposing on people are actually sinful. They're not biblical. Right. Because Jesus said, I mean, I always mix it up, but my burden is easy. My yoke is light. Right. And also he condemns the Pharisees when they go out. He says, you paraphrasing again, you might have to correct me on this. You travel across land and sea to win a single convert, but um, instead you make him twice a child of Satan. Yeah, of hell. Uh huh. Of hell. Yes. Oh yeah. And another time he calls them your your children, your your father the devil. But mm-hmm. yes, of hell, meaning that the Pharisees they have invented so many strange, sometimes stupid practices that by demanding to another human to follow all these rules by perfection. You're actually twisting that individual. Likewise, in many hyper-conservative churches, there's a really heavy emphasis on keeping the commands of Jesus and not like because we have been saved out of love, out of the power of the spirit, we follow the commands, but it's not like, it's more like. Well, and frankly, they have the exact same problem, and I think it's twisted by the enemy in the flesh, the exact same problem the Pharisees had back then, and that is that they try to be faithful but, and, and it's not wrong to be faithful. Like Jesus says in the same tirade about they go over land and see to make one disciple. He also says, you give, the, you give a tenth of mint, dill, and incense, like these small, expensive herbs that are demanded in the tithe. It's like mm-hmm. a really obscure Levitical passage. And so it's not even for everyone in the land of Israel. It's like specifically for Levitical priests. Um, regardless, he says, you, you do that, um, but you um, forsake the more important aspects of the law, faithfulness, justice, um, and mercy. And so you are good you should have kept the first but you should have included the second the more important and yet you you have like done away with the law by breaking one portion of it and so in this way the conservative churches of today and i mean hyper conservative churches will push for the law which is good but they will include laws that aren't righteous and they will emphasize laws that that are less important than the bigger laws right so they'll talk about mercy and justice and whatever else but they're really concerned about like do you drink alcohol do you gamble do you smoke um you know how tight are your leggings or whatever else and sometimes all four of those things can end up being sinning like like if you're gambling all your money away it's not righteous money is your god if you're getting drunk all the time again it's not good it's condemned as drunkenness in the bible and you will inherit the kingdom of god equally you could be some perverse prostitute type person that's leading men astray with your tight leggings but all three things and then whatever the fourth one was um (laughs) dancing uh all four things are not inherently evil. And so when you make them laws that you can't break, you are being the the evil kind of legalist where you're not actually holding the law, you're actually holding your own man-made law, which is wickedness. So yeah, agreed there. And you end up, honestly, those churches, they end up fighting the Jesus of the Bible because of their law, just like the Pharisees fought the law with their own laws, right? The real Jesus. Yeah, the real Jesus. Because the real Jesus gives wine to the wedding at Cana. And conservative Baptists often, who are usually anti-wine, um, will always jump leaps and bounds and do back somersaults to say that 
Uh, well, the word there, wine, which is totally wine in uh-huh. Greek, yep. is grape juice, and it's not. It's just wine. And like, well, <laughs> wine before it becomes wine is grape juice. <laughs> and you're like, okay, yeah, but he turned it into wine so much so that, like, the sommelier comes over and says, like, this is the best wine. Why did we save this for last? Um uh, so clearly it's wine, not grape juice. He's not like, mm, that's some Welch's. We should have started the party off with this bad boy. Uh, in any case, that's what it was. You end up turning Jesus into some person that he's not. He, he creates wine for the wedding to be drunk. Um, he's not a teetotaler. And a common accusation by the Pharisees was, uh, this guy's a drunkard because look at how he just drinks alcohol. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not Welch's grape. Right. Seriously. <laughs> he comes eating and drinking. Clearly drinking, I think, was a reference to wine. Yeah. So just have to be very mindful. We have talked about two very sad precipices. Yeah, that's the word in English, right? Precipices? Uh-huh. Okay, abyss. One, you get rid of all the rules. Jesus is just love. He's just a giant heart. God is love. Another one that often gets cited, by, not in the Gospels, but mm-hmm. God is not just love. He is also righteousness. He's also justice. He's mercy, compassion, kindness. But you can't just overemphasize one. Otherwise, you're going to fall flat on your face on one side and you're going to ignore the law and you're going to sin as a result. Or some people might really like all the rules. It's like a checklist. And then, yes, sir. Yes, God. I got this. I'm going to follow all the commandments. Or I'm going to say I'm even going to go above and beyond. And we're going to say, no, 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 no. In my opinion, a Christian also should never touch a drop of alcohol or or tobacco, whatever it may Mm -hmm. be. In that sense, you fall flat on your face too, by which you have been, you have made the rules, the law, your idol, instead of putting your heart and following the heart of the law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. The reason why you don't steal from people is not because, you know, yes, sir, God, I'm not going to steal. Yes, God does speak in negative sometimes, but rather it's because God is not a thief. God right. is generous. So you see the difference between just blindly following rules or imposing rules on people Whereas there's a transformation that happens in your character by the grace of the Holy Spirit and into the character of Christ. Because Christ is not a thief, he's not a gambler, an adulterer, whatever it may be. He's not those things. Therefore, you do not want to cheat on your wife, etc. So those are the two extremes. Keep an eye out for those. We've gone over some examples here. I mean, I may have more, but not necessarily in the Gospels, but um, we'll put those aside for the moment then. But we just have to be very careful. It's really easy to tip over one side over the other as a reaction to one or the other. So just be mindful that God is both perfectly just and will pull the trigger when sin becomes uh, rampant flooding all over the place, Mm -hmm. like in literally before the flood, or in Corazin and Bethsaida, the cities that you mentioned, in Jerusalem. And he's also more than happy to spare a whole nation of destruction like he did with the prophet Jonah. And, and he was like begging, he's like, God, what the heck is wrong with you? Kill these people already. And he's like, nope. Yeah. I'll spare them. So we have to be mind- we have to be balanced. That's what I'm calling for. And it seems to be, I think, my conclusion, and we were going to do um, rarely quoted Jesus passages, but frankly, there's... We're already running out of time. We've done so many, but no, yeah, do it. I was about to say, I was about to throw it to you, Theodore. How about you do one and then we'll call it. How would I do two? Two. Do however many you've got. Okay. But this is not necessarily rarely quoted. I just don't know how often it's quoted. Anyway, um, this is how we could get like too involved with family or ancestries and traditions, Mm. potentially Catholicism. Um, Luke 8 uh, verse 20 and 21 and it was reported to Jesus your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you but he answered and said to them my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it how would he do that to Mary his mother who (laughs) he cries out to for help on the cross (laughs) and one more well (laughs) Jesus was saying a whole bunch of things. And so it says, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. 
But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. <laughs> Get wrecked. You know, I honestly, before you said that, I've never, I've never heard those spoken in context of like him giving the hand to Mary, but clearly he is, he's not disrespecting his mother, but he's not honoring his mother in some like flamboyant way. Um, like he would if she was the fourth member of the Trinity or whatever else. This is a total side note, um, but on the same point, my brother, let me know. I've seen um, the the Passion of the Christ like a bunch of times. Like we used to watch it every Easter, but it's made by Mel Gibson, a Catholic. And so my brother pointed out, he'd never seen it before, um, pointed out that it's like super Mary focused, and that, which I had never, I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't really remember that. I remember the whipping and the blood, but not the, the Mary. Um, and he said, the whole passion is him like every time he's like about to give up and Jesus is like on the floor, the blood is dripping. Mary's like, and he like (laughs) takes some of her holy strength and and gets up again and keeps going. And like, he's being um, beaten and flogged and putting the the crown of thorns has been put in his head in the governor's palace um, in like a basement. And Mary's like above him and they don't like he's there. Mary's like with a crowd and Kevin, my brother said, uh, she's gonna know he's down there, isn't she? And she does. She like stoops to the ground like a Native American, like he's down there. <laughs> Anyways, just a point. The Mary idolatry is evil, and clearly the Jesus of the Bible, the real one, um, does not hold her in some grant. I mean, he picked her as as the surrogate, right, as his mother. Um, so it's not that she isn't a Christian good woman, um, virtuous and all the rest, but she's not like demigod, and he shows that by not holding to his like ancestry something to be heralded all right no we are not done yet (laughs) go go ahead we do worship christ so we can keep going we're praising god who could ask and this i think this will tie everything in together because many as i said conservatives fall off many hyper conservatives they fall up flat on their faces worship the rules emphasize the rules strange impositions on people rather than focusing on the transformation by the Holy Spirit. They also they have a solid understanding of the Holy Spirit. I've noticed that. Well, honestly, Side- it's, not, it's not just hyper-conservatives. Conservatives, I think, fall into that trap, too. With all the anti-drug stuff, I mean, we've talked about it in this podcast before, but I feel like in 100, 150 years, we're going to be embarrassed how, how the conservative churches who we thought were so, like, into the Bible were so anti-drugs when the Bible has nothing to say about them. But anyways... That I take a lot of heat for that position, you know, because <laughs> people get hurt by drugs all the time, which I totally understand. Mm-hmm. We talked about this previously too. So, and also on the liberal side, it's focus more on the actions, what you do, what matters, what you, the way you live your life, now is what matters. Don't follow the rules. Just love Jesus, and Jesus will always love you, no matter who you are or what you do. Okay, that's it. one that never ex- once to me one story, one part of the gospel that. N- rarely gets quoted is when jesus emphasizes belief mm-hmm. again what what did he call us repent and believe mm-hmm. believe in what when he says to the pharisees as they are saying now this guy's crazy he's gonna kill himself he says jesus said to them you are from below i am from above you are of this world i am not of this world therefore i said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that i am you will die in your sins. And what does this mean? I am. Like, is he, does he forget his grammar? No, I am is the name of God, the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Yahweh, um, Egoimi, when he says that also in earlier to the crowd that's about to, st- uh, before Abraham was, I am. Mm-hmm. Or when the, the angry mob of people says, are you Jesus? He says, Egoimi. And then they all fall, either I forget if it's flat on the face or... Fly backwards. backwards yeah. Okay, they fall backwards. Okay. That's the name of God. You must believe that He is. He is the Almighty God. It doesn't matter. You could cure cancer and die in your sins. Right. You could follow all the Old Testament laws to the letter and die in your sins. Because the moment you break one single letter of the law, you've broken the whole law. So if you throw a uh, rock at a glass window, you're not going to shatter that tiny hole. You're just going to shatter the whole thing. You've shattered the whole... You're no longer perfect. That's my point. What Jesus is calling for is to trust and believe in him alone, that he is the salvation. He is the answer to our problems. It's the world filled with uh, corruption, greed, injustice. That word, something that resonates with many liberal people. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And it will be until he returns. 
and he is the one who's in charge. No human government can succeed. Is God all about rules and perfection and keeping righteousness? For himself, he is, but not for us. Otherwise, why would a savior would have had to come? Right. Rather, what God does is he has provided the advocate, not Muhammad, but the Holy Spirit. Trust me, you wouldn't believe how many... A little too much Quran there, Sebastian. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the Holy Spirit that communicates the truth of Christ to us. He is the one that effectuates the price that Christ paid on the cross. He activates that in our lives. He brings it to us. He shapes our character. He turns our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And by believing in Christ and him alone, we can truly have peace with God. All the times we fail on the commandments, we have an advocate, Christ. What empowers us to do good transforms society, as I always delight to see in church history, countries all over from the Roman Empire to as far as China and India, transformed by the power of Christ alone, not by the effort of humans, but rather by the power of the Spirit and Christ and the Father, of course. So rather, let us turn to the one and only Christ Jesus that we worship. And that is why we have found our cause in serving that one and only three persons, one being, God Almighty. I have been Sebastian, the bookkeeper. (laughs) Wow, do the closing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this has been Michael, the man behind the machine. And in front. (laughs) Theodore, under the PC. You can't take, it from here. take it from here. <laughs> well, I'm just rolling with that. Amen. Uh, if you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can go to foundcause.pidebeat.com and download them all for your listening pleasure. That is audio only, though. If you want to see our video episodes, you have to go right here to YouTube and or Facebook.com forward slash foundcause. And we're also on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you might find your podcast. So until next time, we do something completely different, probably a response video. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.